Hi everybody and welcome to the podcast this week. So this podcast is a little special for me. It's not often that you get to interview two former graduate students at your former institution, but this is what happened this week. So this week we have Dr. Nemeth and Dr. Patterson, both formerly at the Ohio State University, but now stellar scholars at Denison University and Penn State. And what's really cool is that they took the work that they did uh, while at graduate school with Dr. Kinlock uh, into their institution. So they both talk about uh, the trials and tribulations of being new faculty and starting this work somewhere new, but also how they took that work on and then started to uh, reach out to the larger experiential ed service learning community, which has finally uh, accumulated into this new book that they uh, they talk about and they share with me in this interview. So uh, enjoy the interview this week and I will see you all later. So hello everybody and this week I would like to welcome to, I would like to say up and coming but they're not up and coming, they're already well established researchers in the field of service learning and experiential ed. So first of all we have uh, Dr. Nemeth at Denison University. And then we also have Dr. Patterson, whose institution I've forgotten. So where are you at, Ashley? <laughs> I'm at Penn State. Penn State. That's why. <laughs> that's why I forgot. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to let you both uh, introduce yourselves. Who wants to go first? Uh, this is Emily Nemeth. I'm an assistant professor at Denison University in Granville. I teach in the education department and I also teach classes in our queer studies program. And in terms of um, practice with experiential ed and service learning, I do most of my um, service learning work within the education department around um, school placements and community placements. And then this semester for the first time, I'm trying out e-service learning, which has been uh, quite a learning curve, but um, I'm figuring out with my students as we go. All right, so we're going to jump back to that, that e-service learning in a minute. Okay. So, okay. so I say this every single time, but I want to apologize for mispronouncing your name again. It's something <laughs> I'm going to do for forever, Dr. Nemeth, and I apologize. I like it. I like the way you say it. <laughs> I'm just not going to adopt it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, so my name is Ashley Patterson. I'm at Penn State University where I have been now for, um, this is the start of my sixth year. Um, I'm in the College of Ed Department of Curriculum Instruction and um, my grad work is in the um, program area, language, culture, and society. Um, and a lot of the work that I'm doing there is around equity and social justice issues. My undergrad work is primarily in literacy education for pre-K to fourth grade teachers who want to teach in that age band. I also have recently developed with a, another colleague, a social, with a, with a team of colleagues, but there's kind of two of us who are moving it forward now, social justice and education minor which is open mm. across the university and it's a six course minor and six of the credits are required to be experientially based coursework. So we think that 
equity oriented coursework is great and is something, but to rise to the level of social justice work, action and experience mm-hmm. have to be a part of it. So that's just a snippet of the things. I don't think we have enough time to hear about all the other <laughs> things going on <laughs> these days, but hopefully that's enough to get you interested in listening to the rest of <laughs> Okay, so let's let's go let's go back to the genesis of, of how you guys know each other and, and how we all know each other. So you started at Ohio State, right? We did. All right. So tell me a little about about how uh, the work that you did at Ohio, the Ohio State University <laughs> uh, helped shape the work that you're doing now. Both Ashley and I served on a, a grant through at the Ohio State University that Dr. Valerie Kinlock had secured to support what at the time I think was called high need districts. So, so there was a, a grant initiative coming out of the National Education Association. It was a national initiative that sent monies to districts around the country, around the U.S., and was intended to ramp up efforts around experiential learning and service learning and to pair the curriculum with meaningful issues, things that um, students, that young people, that children, their teachers, their families were dealing with. And and NEA had the vision, and certainly um, Dr. Kimlock had the vision to um, bring it to Columbus to say that this is a really meaningful way to to do public education. And so Ashley and I were grad students on that grant. And I think I started, when did I start? Um, Maybe 2011, 2012 on that grant. And it was multi-tiered part of the work. And I'll I'll let Ashley pick up and, and fill in more, but I'll just say one more thing that there were various tiers. One was work within the graduate school, providing coursework to in-service teachers who wanted to do service learning and experiential ed. So there was an in-service kind of training component. Um, There was also work within the school. So graduate students and faculty, union um, reps and community members were supported to do work inside of schools. And then there was this um, kind of third tier that evolved around sustainability, which I think in name we called it philanthropy at the time, um, but was certainly about this idea of just love for humanity and for people's dignity. And philanthropy was one of the ways that we hooked local foundations to contribute to the future of those projects that were going, the initiatives that were going on in the schools. So there were various, these various levels, and Ashley and I think each served in different roles and got a lot out of that project, mm-hmm. I think, pedagogically in terms of our scholarship. Um, Absolute Connections, yeah. So that's, I think that's, that's how we met, was through, through that, um, that grant project, even though I was a couple years behind Emily, so I didn't start off at the same level, but one of the things that was a part of the grant was local educators could sign up to take coursework at the university to learn how to do critical service learning projects. Just what does this mean? How do I do it? And they also received mini grants from the larger grant to help facilitate the work that they wanted to do. And so one of the things we noted throughout the process and anyone who's tried to do critical service learning work knows it's a lot 
of work. And it takes a lot of person power. And um, mm -hmm. even when you have a district that is signed on to facilitate it or to, to let it happen, because some places don't even want it to happen, it still is just a lot. So one of the um, services that we provided as part of the whole thing was that graduate students and some undergrads were um, were offering service within the schools. So I would go regularly to um, schools just to to ask what I could help with, to do research for teachers, to in some cases even co-teach, mm -hmm. and that was that was another piece that I it, it was invaluable experience for me. And just another layer, the many layers of the service learning aspect mm. of this, just another opportunity to offer services and have services offered to me at the same time. So I think one of the key words that you just used there was the use of critical service learning, right? Mm. And I think that was one of the one of the objectives of, of the grant that you guys had, right? So how mm. did that look specifically compared to like just service learning versus critical service learning. So what did you guys do differently in Columbus that was different than service learning? I think one of the things that we have that we spoke to and a reflective piece we did recently was um, about the critical aspect of critical service learning really disrupted this notion of who is served and who does service. And one of the classrooms I was in the broad topic they were talking about was the prison to, uh, transforming the pr school to prison pipeline into a school to a college or career pipeline. And as a part of it, they read Tuki Williams' book about his life being imprisoned. And through that, they learned some things about how young mothers are more likely to have children who have issues and are more likely to become involved in this system. And they decided, the students decided that the service they wanted to embed into their learning was how could they address these issues in their community? What kind of things could they do? A group of students were like, you know, we're doing this work for other people, but we also, I, I have a lot of characteristics of my life that are outside of my control that are putting me on that school to prison pipeline. Like, I need help too essentially and through through that we were able to work with some county social workers to come and provide do lunch bunch groups with the students a lot of a lot of the students remarked that this was the first time that they weren't the beneficiaries of philanthropy as it were that they were able to offer services and they took a look at structurally systemically why is that a, the case? We weren't thinking about things as, oh, it must just be a random occurrence for people who live in, in the neighborhoods that, that send their kids to the school. No, which is sometimes, I think, a, um, a way that the lens that service learning projects can be viewed through, just a kind of mm -hmm. a random problem that needs addressed. Um, we looked at systemically, what are the things within our control, outside of our control, that are all working together to create the context that we're experiencing today? And once we have that knowledge, or as we're getting that knowledge established, how can we start to undo some of those systems? Mm -hmm. To pick up with what Ashley just shared, 
I think the that idea of like knowledge construction and representation was a big part of the ninth grade English classroom that I worked in. And so the students in this project evolved what was the first wheelchair accessible community garden in their neighborhood to a disability awareness campaign within their school. Part of that evolution was a focus on language and how people and identities get constructed discursively and tuning into how integral our language is in terms of equity work. But one of the things I thought was really interesting that wasn't necessarily a, a feature of the way that it got taken up in the classroom was some of the conversations that the students were having outside of the class around like multimodalities and representing knowledges and how they circulated knowledges and understanding. And so, you know, in this ninth grade English classroom, um, students who maybe struggled with traditional alphabetic text and argumentative writing and so on, the established standards of, of this classroom, um, and the teacher was certainly receptive to this. Students who struggled there were incredibly adept and skilled at taking what they understood and embedding it in video and sound and mixing things together through these really incredible um, videos with pictures they had taken from the garden and um, over, overlaying voiceovers to provide some narrative of what they were seeing and what needed to change. You know, and, and again, it reminds me of, I think it's Dan Booten has this term, remainders in service learning, just the stuff that young people or students start to talk about that teachers aren't always aware of. And I remember we had tra traveled to a um, youth leadership conference in Colorado and one of the conversations we had in the hotel lobby was just about language use in the classroom and um, language varieties and uh, linguicism. And you know, the students didn't necessarily use that terminology, but that's exactly what they were talking about. And um, they talked about a science classroom where a, one of the teachers was kind of patrolling the ways in which they constructed meaning through language. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's fascinating to see, I think it was a feature of the project because the disability awareness campaign had everything to do with language, but then it evolved into multimodalities and how do we represent what we know, um, whose um, representations get patrolled or regulated and who's free to speak as long as they adopt a particular way of um, communicating. So you both had very powerful experiences at, as graduate students, right? Getting your doctorate. So you both left OSU and then went to Denison and Penn State. So how did you decide to take those experiences on with you and to continue this critical service learning work, right? What did you have mm -hmm. to do to uh, work with your colleagues who maybe didn't want to do it or were unaware of what it was? and the administration as well and also the communities right because you were going into new communities who didn't necessarily mm -hmm. want to be saved you know so, mm -hmm. so how did you approach it as new faculty that's a good question um i feel like i had to write some of this down recently um <laughs> as we as we all navigate uh, review processes i was like what what am i doing 
Um, and I think part of my work initially, Christian, was like authentically stepping into a community that I cared a lot about. Mm. So I was really fortunate actually to return to a place where I grew up. And I know that not every person, not every academic has a chance to do that. And so coming back to a place that I cared a lot about, I started to network with community organizations that weren't necessarily, they weren't means to an end for my courses, but more so helped to establish my connectedness, my rootedness within my own geographies to get a sense of place and what people were talking about. You know, so some of my work in the community has been with the Children's Defense Fund Freedom School of Licking County, another, the Freedom School in Licking County, which is a a different group oriented around popular education, and then more recently, the Community Alliance for Racial Justice. And so I think my work as a scholar and practitioner, teacher, as somebody who's committed to service within the various communities that I'm part of, that was really important first and foremost, that I felt a sense of congruency, that that my life was congruent, that I I could do the work of an academic in the way that made sense to me. And that was rooting myself initially in what was going on in in this geography, in this community. You know, but to one of Ashley's points, knowing that that's not, that the issues we were talking about aren't just local, that they're, you know, so it's, it's doing that initial analysis and continuing to keep it moving. And then in terms of my classes, there was a long history at Denison of um, sort of a praxis orientation among the, among the faculty in the education department. So I worked with my colleagues and found some great community partners. And I think that critical part, I think Ashley said this earlier too, about K-12, it's certainly the case in higher ed too, if you don't have the support of your institution, mm-hmm. that critical work is much, well, service learning maybe in general, you know, if it doesn't count, people might be discouraged. And then if the critical nature of it raises too many red flags, you know, again, junior faculty might, might not do it. That was, I was really fortunate that was not the case for me. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, with my literacy and learning class have worked with adult ed programs, adults who are pursuing their high school diploma equivalent, working in local schools with a retention program that was initiated by Governor Strickland to help students who are being pushed out of school to remain in school. And then more recently with this digital service learning, trying to keep it critical, um, we are reconceptualizing community to uh, within our class. So I'm asking my students to say, okay, you know, here we are spread across geographies. I have a student in Vietnam, a student in China, a student in Chicago. We're all over. What does community look like this year for our class? Um, And then what does that mean for the projects and the work that needs to be done collectively? So stay tuned. I'm not there yet. <laughs> There's still seven weeks left. But well, that sounds exciting. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited about it. And I think the students, they are eager to do the work. It's a really great generation to teach and to learn with because they have a vision for what higher ed is supposed to do. And I think they're holding faculty and our institutions accountable for that. So when I said, you know, do you want to think with me about what community means? Everybody has something to say 
about where our energy should go as a class. You know, my, my commitments, the reason why I'm in this profession are how excited I and invested I am about making connections with other humans. And to be able to do so in ways that can be generative for people who, who I'm not necessarily in those relationships with is really at the core of my goals. So, um, but then there are some of the realities of I am living within the same system that I'm constantly critiquing. So there, there's, there's navigation there, especially as an assistant professor, but keeping those commitments at the core, I think makes, makes some of the other things a little bit more easy at least easy to feel good about it. Now, <laughs> I also have to think about tenure and what are the things that are going to be, you know, rewarded within that system, even as I'm trying to push back on that system. But um, so I think one of the things that was super important in the beginning of this was to find people who I could align with epistemologically, ideologically, and in terms of what I wanted to do. So having a core group of, um, of people who I could help and who could help me, what I wouldn't have gotten to where I am now without that. So being at a, a massive institution like Penn State, right? So how did you do that? Again, the, and this is, I, I am an introvert at heart. <laughs> I am a person <laughs> who, who very much cherishes alone time. But getting out there and just meeting with people this was pre-COVID, so having coffee <laughs> and um, letting my network grow there, asking people, do you, who else do you work with? Is there anyone who you could introduce me to? That is, it, it, was, it was a labor in the beginning, but it, it was necessary because people, especially at an institution like this, people can live inside of their silos. And um, one of, I always say one of the things I like least about how much access we have to, to just awesome programming and stuff is that I often find out about a wonderful thing that happened yesterday, <laughs> just because <laughs> There's so many things going on. So getting connected was hugely important um, in the beginning there. And, and some of those connections, you, I, I always try at least to make the connections for the connection's sake, but you never know which of those are going to be connections that lead you to financial opportunities or people who can be your, your champions when the question comes up about, well, how do we justify how much effort she's putting into this program that really doesn't meet the publisher parish standards? Mm. Um, having people who can speak on your behalf behind closed doors is also part of those, those things. Yeah, c combining powers and strengths and hours in the day because there are not enough to do all of this by <laughs> yourself is... I think one of the only ways that I've been able to do some of the things that really feed me. Ashley and I have talked about how a marker for us was our graduate program and having the mentorship and mm. the philosophies that guided the advising of Dr. Valerie Kinlock and certainly Dr. Cynthia Tyson and the relationships that we established there with another colleague, Tamara Butler. So. I think that that philosophy became integral to the 
grant that we were work on, working on, it became kind of a guiding a North Star for how we could operate within the academy. So as Ashley was talking, I was thinking conversations we've had before about how fortunate we were to have had somebody take the work of community building and relationship mm -hmm. building and uh, helping us to find champions and advocates and sponsors who would help us through these mm -hmm. early days of our, our careers. Including yeah. you, Christian. Well, I was waiting. <laughs> I was waiting for that, but <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so true. I mean, you were the first person that I worked with after graduate school. I remember I emailed you, and I was like, "There's this call. Have you seen it?" And you're like, "Let's write something," and and we did. So you know, it, we. I was certainly fortunate. I, I think Ashley'd say the same with our mentoring. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And nine years on, and nine years mm -hmm. on, here you both are, stellar researchers, critical service learning authors, and you are now embarking on, is this your first book? Yeah, for, for me. Yeah, oh, for me right. too. All right, so, uh, <laughs> so let's hear about this book. What was the genesis behind the book and, and what kind of things are in it? Yeah, so, well, it's not written yet, <laughs> but I think the idea is certainly there. You know, we wanted to, build on the really important work of other critical service learning scholars. And I'll say, if, you know, in my dissertation work, I had looked at the work of Dr. Mitchell, Dr. Hart, Dr. Booten, Diagre, and others, and was interested in this critical framing, you know, and then in my own work now at Denison have continued to, to write and think about what it means to do service learning that attends to issues of interpersonal power and institutional power, what relationships and connections and community looks like, how do you truly work toward equity um, given the uh, semester, kind of these artificial boundaries that are placed around, imposed upon um, learning and meaning making. You know, so what we have sometimes is the semester. Maybe all you have is like a COVID three weeks and then you transition to remote learning. So you're always pivoting. And I think building on that work, we see this book as an opportunity to build on that really important work that has already happened. And critical service learning scholars have, I think, pushed ourselves to say the work isn't done yet. You know, we are facing incredible radical to reference another book in the series the service learning series um, with information age publishing radical inequality we want to raise this question of what role will critical service learning play um, what capacities what potential is untapped within the framework mm -hmm. what theories are serving the framework and what do we need to do away with um, what do we need to revisit so there's a rich history there, I think, that our first question asks our um, contributing authors to think about. What is the, what is the history, um, what are the knowledges that we collectively draw on to do this work with our community partners, with our students? Well, I'll hand it over to Ashley. <laughs> no, I, just coming alongside all of that, I think in critical realms of education, we are constantly having to update our language or reinstantiate what we mean by certain things. You know, I think about ethnic studies to multicultural mm -hmm. ed to social justice ed or um, 
culturally relevant uh, pedagogies to culturally sustaining, to revitalizing all these things. And part of why the renaming has to happen or rearticulation is because the criticalness sometimes can fall away. I think some of Dr. Mitchell's work has talked about this as well, how wait, that's not what I meant when I was, <laughs> when I said critical service learning. So some of the goals that we're trying to meet with this um, book are to theorize the critical aspects of critical service learning and illustrate what it means in a lot of different ways. Some ways that are a much more cerebral, deep dive look into what does it mean and some of what Emily was talking about, what is on a more, on a plane of theoretical organization, what does it mean? And then also at a very practical level, how do we translate these pie in the sky, sometimes ideals into things that we actually do? So we're hoping that the book covers a spread of those, um, those dynamics within the critical service learning conversation, all while elevating this, not elevating as in this is the only space that this is happening in, just a, a, a collect, a collection of thoughts that highlight it in a way that you just can't miss it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, These ideas around the critical nature of, of service learning, the types of service learning that we're talking about. So this is an exciting, exciting book then. So when, uh, so when, when should we look forward to this book? Do we have a release? Great question. (laughs) We, we are currently in the review process. And I think for any of our reviewers who are listening to this podcast, thank you for helping us to evolve (laughs) to push this volume toward publication. And I know our, our co-authors, I mean, thematically across the, the submissions, it's really exciting to see the range that that Ashley mm-hmm. highlighted around theoretical and foundational contributions, concerns for critical ecology, anti-blackness, racism, destructive and extractive capitalist kind of economic policies, really hands-on explicit frameworks, design features of critical service learning, e-service learning from a critical stance, and then issues of sustainability so with all of that rich material, there's much work to be done in terms of um, making sure we honor the contribution of those co-authors. So TBD, but we anticipate early 2021. Now, having done three of these kind of books myself, I know how exhausting it is, right? <laughs> but, but how do you see your own work individually like moving forward from this book? Mm. Well, that's a great question. So I think on on one plane is just being able to interact. I, I feel really fortunate and privileged to be able to interact with so many exciting, compelling ideas that that the the authors have written. And I think sometimes my best intentions are to really, really do a lot of reading of everything that comes out every day, every moment, and it just doesn't happen. So being forced, you know, to do it, it puts me in a, in a wonderful spot just to be able to, to glean from the information there. And then I think also just 
as I'm continuing to develop professionally, getting a little bit to see what happens behind the curtain has been really interesting. And I am most often wearing the hat of an author myself. So here and there, a peer reviewer, but being able to see how, how does all of this work to, to come to this, this end result. And I think Emily and I have been able to sit and think deeply about how we want to ensure that love for humanity is at the core of the way that we're organizing this. So even the, the intention with which we write emails and curate the, the, the feedback that we're sending, like even like it, it actually was a little bit heartbreaking for me, some of the responses we got back to having been generous with things like deadlines and things. When people are telling us, you know, had a, had a hospital visit, unexpected hospital visit or something. And we're like, absolutely. Why, instead of us telling you when, when we could extend it, the deadline to you, do you, do you mind looking at what else you have going on and letting us know when we, and like the profuse um, gratitude that people gave us really made me think like what what are we not doing right in this in academia writ large that someone considers it to be a gift to just acknowledge that you have plenty <laughs> of things going on and one of those things where our lives intersect is that you have brilliance to share and i have right now a platform for that and want to ensure that you have that opportunity it just was a little bit mind blowing but a learning process that I'm thankful for. The way Ashley put that, I just want it to, I want that to be the last thing that any of the <laughs> listeners hear. I, I really appreciate the way that you uh, framed that. Everything that you shared, um, I would, I would echo. It's been, we've been grateful to have, I think both Alan Tinkler and Todd Price are the editors of the series. And, Alan in particular has, um, to the guidance that Ashley mentioned, operates from that like deeply humanizing, loving place. I was recently picked back up um, Bell Hook's book on love. And she talks about how her understanding of love is like freeing people up to be the best version of themselves and mm. butchering her beautiful language. But I think, you know, having again, people who have achieved leadership who are in positions of power who refuse to do it the way it's been done if the way it's been done has reproduced dehumanizing kind of inequitable values philosophies and i think that has been so refreshing and it's been a great way to learn it's one of the things i really admire about ashley is the intentionality behind everything that she does and so she has mentored me implicitly through the emails that she's crafted and so I've adopted that practice it's this community of practice where I think um, we certainly have learned a lot I'll take that from the two Christian and then the collaboration that yeah to just gush for the world for a moment of <laughs> about being able to work with Emily and, and and Emily invited me on to this project. She already had the ball rolling a little bit and invited me on. So I'm forever thankful that that she's allowed me the opportunity to be apprenticed in these these really, really 
the, the community of practice that we, we've been able to be involved in as a part of this, I think is, is tremendous. And it's, there's no such thing as one way giving or taking in this situation, which is, is, is very important to me. And it makes it seem, it, make, it makes me able to justify doing a book in a pandemic. Because I sometimes am like, why, what are we doing? There's like, the world is falling apart outside. How do we, but that this, I, I'm not just doing business as usual, because I'm, I'm really pushing back against that phraseology in these times. What this is, 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 a, is an opportunity to, to build relationships in a way that has a tangible artifact at the end. But but still for me, it's about the relationship building and about the having another opportunity to celebrate humans and humanity. Well, that is a great way to end the interview today. So Dr. Nemeth and Dr. Patterson, thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank, thank you, you Dr. So Winterbottom. Much. <laughs> no worries. Have a great rest of the week. Thank you. you too.